0: Welcome,
1: everyone. I'm here at the Oslo Metropolitan University, and I'm very excited about the guest of today's episode. He's professor at Oslo Met and the head of the research group Clinical Interventions and Biomedical Engineering. He has three main research areas, hemodynamic and cardiovascular responses to resistance exercise, Neuroimaging of brain activity during physical activity and energy expenditure of prosthetic ampulation. Ladies and gentlemen, here is our guest, Derje Sjowak. Welcome, Terne.
2: Thank you all.
1: Yes, so so you have done research in a quite wide range uh, of themes. Which one of the fields you feel most passionate about? Oh, uh...
2: Tricky question. <laughs> uh, I feel passionate about uh, all three. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> nowadays, I focus more on uh, energy expenditure and uh, monitoring brain activity during physical activity. But historically, I've done a lot of studies on hem- mm. hemodynamics uh, during a resistance exercise
3: mm. and.
2: Uh, I think that is because I have a PhD in exercise physiology, so it was natural for me to move into that field. Uh, <clears throat> and I studied the hemodynamics uh, uh, in cardiac patients, uh, especially because they uh, often are, are, as a group, they are individuals with uh, low physical strength, but they need to increase the strength to, to mm. do their uh, daily activities. And, yeah. And uh, there are good ways of doing resistance exercise and there are bad ways. And we, we did know very little about how blood pressure and things responded to different kinds of resistance training. So that, that was the, one of the cornerstones of my research. But uh, lately with the onset of more wearable devices we have moved a little bit more into the field of of uh, monitoring energy expenditure and uh, and then uh, uh, monitoring brain activity
1: mm, yeah yeah and in the hemodynamics what what are the most important things with uh, with the cardiac patients
2: well the, the thing is that uh, there are international guidelines for how cardiac patients should exercise as mm. doing uh, uh, resistance exercise. And, and, the, and mainly the advice was that people should lift uh, weights uh, with the moderate resistance and doing many repetitions.
3: Mm.
2: For example, 40 to 60 percent of their maximum capacity mm. and lifting 13, 14, 15 repetitions. Mm. Uh, When we started our investigation, we saw that if people follow uh, these recommendations, they in fact have a higher blood pressure than if they lift much heavier weights, but Mm. with fewer repetitions. Uh, So our research uh, showed that uh, uh, the blood pressure increases by the number of repetitions and is less related to, to, to the actual weight that you are lifting.
1: All right. That's actually quite counterintuitive because if, yeah. if you put a lot of weight, you kind of even feel, feel the pressure, I think.
2: Yeah, uh, you can do that. Uh, but the trick is to avoid what we call the Valsalva mm. maneuver, which is uh, holding your breath during lifting. So if you breathe with an open mouth uh, during both uh, uh, the lifting phase and the lowering phase uh, of of the exercise, your blood pressure will not increase uh, as much as if you uh, hold your breath. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that is one way of controlling the blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And also that if you do, even if you do heavy lifting. Uh, but for example 4, 5, 6 reps, your blood mm. pressure will not uh, have the time to increase uh, ah. to, to, to the levels we see if you lift, for example 15 repetitions.
1: Okay, that's actually quite interesting. And when you do the Valsalva maneuver, is it that it supports your uh, torso to keep the position? Does it cause any problems if you keep breathing that can you actually support your
2: Yeah, I think you can. Maybe not uh, for all exercises. Uh, For example, if you do uh, different uh, resistance exercises, sitting in a chair, for example, like knee extension, leg Mm -hmm. press, uh, shoulder press, bicep skirts, things like that there's no problem with uh, because you get a squat from the apparatus mm. but you, if you do more <clears throat> free exercises like uh, uh, squats and uh, things like that you, you will feel the need to stabilize a little bit mm. uh, but uh, then you're p- perhaps moving into another type of People than we have investigated. But mm. Not many cardiac patients do <laughs> heavy squats.
1: Yeah, 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 I, I can see that. Yeah.
2: And if you lift really, really heavy, for example, testing uh, your maximum strength and so on, there will always be some wall maneuver, even if you try to avoid it. So yeah. Mm. But but you know the, the the cardiovascular system is built to to withstand uh, very high blood pressures. So for a normal, healthy being, there is no problem with, uh, with a higher blood pressure mm. that you uh, encounter during these kind of exercises.
1: Yeah. So basically, you would recommend doing the movements while sitting that you don't need to support your body at yeah. as much.
2: Yeah. At least for uh, for patients and for people that are a little bit un- accustomed to resistance training, it's always wise to have some uh machine training before you move into free uh, free weights perhaps
1: Mm, yeah yeah and then you can more easily concentrate keep breathing when when,
2: yes there are fewer distractions
1: yeah yeah i can see that and is there an effect of working overhead is it different for your blood pressure that if you keep your arms over your head
2: yeah uh, I haven't done a lot of research on that, uh, but uh, I would guess uh, any kind of overhead work will increase your blood pressure. Mm. Um, Yeah. So, uh, interesting research question, though. Yeah, yeah. And what is kind of the
1: safe limit with the cardiac patients? How high can the blood pressure go? Is there some guideline, rule of thumb, that it should go over something?
2: Well, It may relate to what kind of chronic disease you have. Mm. Uh, if you have, uh, what I have investigated is the response in people with, for example, uh, 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 a bypass uh, operation uh, and things like that. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> they can easily tolerate uh, blood pressures that uh, healthy people uh, mm. encounter but it may be different for people with other cardiac diseases with the uh, heart failure, that, uh, that, is the, that the heart has less capacity to pump blood.
3: Mm. And,
2: and uh, these group of patients are not that well investigated as other uh, uh, groups of cardiac patients. Mm. So I think it's safe to say that, um, uh, you have to consult your physician before doing this, uh, uh, and, uh, but for people with, uh, uh, with uh, which are treated and uh, back to normal life and uh, on medications and have had their bypass operation and everything is working smooth, uh, there is no uh, real worry. Uh, for them not to participate in, uh, in resistance training.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I remember reading something that for cardiac patients it might be more effective to improve their endurance in the beginning by doing strength training than actually endurance training. Have you Have you read anything related to this?
2: Yeah, uh, vaguely I think I remember reading it, but I don't remember the
1: yeah <laughs>
2: the actual study.
1: Yeah, I, I don't remember. Also, it might be the difference between the local and systemic endurance. That yeah. maybe after mm-hmm. the after the surgery you are kind of the, you need the local endurance more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are are you still doing some studies with this hemodynamics, or is this <clears throat> from the past mainly?
2: No, I'm writing up a publication now, uh, or or in fact two. Uh, one on a study on uh, <clears throat> on the post-exercise uh, response uh, uh, to to exercise on, on blood pressure, mm. uh, and the other study is uh, a continuation of, of the of our previous work on uh, hemodynamics during resistance training. Yeah. Uh, where I looked at uh, what is the blood pressure when you lift a weight, uh, a heavy weight uh, uh, with, with the Valsalva maneuver, and then what is the blood pressure if you do it without the Valsalva maneuver.
3: Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've
2: done this uh, in a group of patients doing lifting heavy weights and also the same with lifting more moderate weights. Yeah, So also I can compare the different uh, R- resistance levels, uh, <coughs> with and without the double Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Interesting. So, if we go to your other field of research, uh, the energy en- expenditure of prosthetic amputation, uh, why is it important to study the energy expenditure in these people?
2: Well, first of all, they have uh, lost a leg. Uh, and they have difficulty moving around
3: Mm. and
2: basically they need to learn to walk again Mm. Uh, they have to learn to use uh, uh, processes that don't give them any uh, kinesthetic feedback from the ground Mm. so so everything is very different and uh, there is a great interest in the community about Well, everybody say that uh, people with uh, lower limb amputation, they have a higher energy expenditure, Uh, and coming from my background of exercise physiology, I was very intrigued by this, and Mm. wondering why is it so that uh, uh, their energy expenditure is higher, or is it higher? Mm. Uh, That was the first target of investigations. and behind all this is the fact that all these people with a lower limb amputation say that the ability to move around and uh, <clears throat> do some physical activity and be in the nature is very important for their uh, mental health. Mm. So, so, so then it's important to find out what are the obstacles in daily life for for these people that uh, stops them from being physically, uh, physically active? Is it the prosthesis? Is it that uh, they are in low uh, physical conditions? Or is it some other factor mm-hmm. that, uh, that could explain uh, the, their energy expenditure?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so you said that people think that it's higher have you have you measured and have you noticed that it's actually higher or is it uh, depending on the individual or how how does it go
2: well <laughs> this is a little bit tricky question because it depends your angle of how uh, <laughs> you yeah but typically in the clinical literature you see that uh, everybody almost reported that. Uh, energy expenditure in uh, lower limb empties is higher mm. than people with uh, uh, two intact legs. Yeah. Uh, but then they look at a figure which is called walking economy. Mm. And walking economy is having the oxygen uptake and divide it on the walking speed. Mm. So then you get the oxygen uptake per meter traveled. Mm. But When you break down the numbers, you can see that the actual, uh, if a lower limb amputee and a healthy person walk at their self-selected speed, yeah, uh, the the speed that they uh, normally choose without uh, having to hurry or do anything specific, you see that their oxygen uptake is uh, similar. Let's say it's 15 milliliters per kilo per, mm. per, per, per minute. Yeah. But what you also observe is that their self-selected speed is very different. Yeah. A lower empathy could have, for example, walking speed of one meter per second. Yeah. Uh, and a healthy person could have, for example, 1.4 meters per second. And if you have then the same oxygen effect and divide it on different speeds, mm. this will affect the walking economy. So the walking economy used in this context is wrong, I think, mm. because it does not tell you how much uh, uh, energy the body expends. It tells you how much uh, it tells you about an energy expenditure that is much, very much related to the walking speed.
3: Mm.
2: So you need to find another variable that is more independent of walking speed to, to give a true estimate of what is the energy expenditure during a prosthetic ambulation. Mm. And I think one need to do is to test their maximum aerobic capacity yeah. And then relate the energy expenditure during walking to a percentage of their maximum capacity. Mm. Then you can also compare different groups and uh, different persons because you have uh, the relative intensity. Yeah. So, yeah. so that has been the focus for G4 papers uh, to. To dig into this and uh, try to look at energy expenditure from a new angle for, for, for this group of patients
1: okay let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors
0: this podcast is sponsored by fibion a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting standing physical activity and energy expenditure furthermore Fibian has been shown to be valid, categorizing physical activity into light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com/research. And and how how does it
1: affect that you don't have the and you don't have the feedback uh, coming coming? So how how does it affect the walking?
2: Uh, yeah the uh, observation uh, <clears throat> uh, well we did some observations when we did this energy expenditure studies and uh, we saw that people with lower limb amputation they need to orientate themselves in the room much more than people with two intact legs mm. meaning that they use their sight a lot more they have to scan the room or the, the surroundings, if, if there are obstacles, so they can prepare better for what is um, coming towards them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this then started, uh, in fact, the research field with uh, neuroimaging. Yeah. <clears throat> because me and my colleagues, we noticed that uh, when... People with lower uh, lower limb amputation uh, just did ordinary walking, and we mm. had them to look away from uh, from uh, from the floor. Yeah. And then the uh, the balance got worse. Yeah. So it made us think that uh, uh, eyesight was very important for maintaining balance. Yeah. Because they they, they cannot uh, feel the kinesthetic feedback from from the ground. Yeah. And orientate through that. Yeah. So then I we was thinking, h- how could we possibly investigate what is going on in the brain? Yeah. Uh, in free moving uh, people? Yeah. And uh, this then uh, started this uh, research uh, interest we have with looking at uh, uh, brain activity during mm. uh, prosthetic ambulation.
1: Yeah. And so so basically they don't get any proprioceptive feedback. And do you think they might walk with the stiffer legs? Like I think older people, because the reaction times are, are longer, they usually start to co-activate their muscles that they don't need to respond, that they go a little bit stiffer. Do you, do you know if this happens also with the amputees?
2: I'm not sure I haven't done any EMG studies on, on these people, but uh, they walk uh, a little bit different mm. uh, than uh, healthy people. Uh, and uh, their stance face on a on healthy leg and an amputated leg is different. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, and of course... Uh, the ability for them to correct their uh, walking while <laughs> doing the activity is, is uh, much less, uh, uh, while well, they have much less possibility to, to correct their walking. So, so it's, it's uh, harder to, to do ordinary walking. So, so many amputees, they don't walk for, walk for longer distances at, at the same time. Mm. but they do a lot of uh, intermediate activities and then they have to rest and then they do their activity again and,
1: yeah Yeah. so you could think that maybe the when you start to measure their daily life maybe their bouts of walking differ from the healthy ones
2: yes uh, we <laughs> think so and we are starting a study now to look into this uh what are the length of the activity bouts for these these persons? Uh, how long are the how many steps do they take in each activity bout? Mm. Uh, how long are the resting periods? Uh, how long do they sit? How long do they stand? Things like this is important to know because, uh, as we all are told, physical activity is good for you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, and. And about the, the resting periods do you need, they need more resting periods and if so why is, why is that? Where does the need for rest rest come from?
2: I think it could be related to several things. <laughs> One thing is that uh, uh, walking with a prosthesis can give you some uh, skin trouble mm. uh, aberrations in the skin uh, and you're amputated stump get a little bit sore. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> so that reason alone, you, you need to, to take off the prosthesis, for example, and, and rest a little bit. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, uh, uh, the fitting of the prosthesis uh, to, to, to the actual remaining leg is also very important. Mm-hmm. And if that fitting is not good, it could affect the... Uh, uh, about how you walk and how stressful it is to walk, and uh, not everybody gets uh, uh, the best fit that is possible. Uh, yeah. So uh, there are maybe several reasons, because they, uh, uh, or, or why they need to rest a lot. But but also, <clears throat> I think uh, looking at some of the previous studies we have done, we see that. Uh, Maximum aerobic capacity of this group of uh, person is very low. Mm. So maybe in the range of 25 to 30 milliliters, milliliters per kilo per minute.
3: Yeah.
2: And this means that doing activities of daily life will tax your maximum capacity much more than a person with a higher VO two max. Mm. So if you constantly are... <clears throat> are uh, doing activities that are close to <laughs> your maximum capacity yeah. you of course get more tired
1: yeah yeah naturally so so basically you said that probably the bouts of walking are different and this is usually because of the fitting and the soreness in the in the stomp so do you think you could see actually something valuable of how well it fits if you actually measure their daily life and their Uh, the longest activity pouts or something you start to look the activity more closely, do you think it would tell something about the success of the fit or or so on? Yeah,
2: Yeah, I believe so. Uh, And uh, I'm not a prosthetic uh, engineer, uh, but I know there's a lot of uh, adjustments to be be made uh, uh, for fitting the prosthesis uh, Mm. properly. And what we call the alignment, for example, uh, how the the lower leg orientates to to to, to the knee joint, and, mm. uh, which is uh, often then an electronic or hydraulic knee joint, it's also a major player into this game. Mm. So uh, you could easily uh, think that, for example, if if you're Processes is not properly aligned. Yeah. Uh, the effort of walking will feel very much higher, and then of course you will, will not feel uh, the urgency to, to to walk as much as uh, as before.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I can see that.
1: And what what do you think are the the factors mainly preventing physical activity with this group of people like?
2: Well, one thing is that several activities become much more troublesome to do. For example, cycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can have your specific cycling prosthesis. Yeah. Uh, uh, but if you don't, uh, you have uh, maybe have a problem with uh, when you pull your leg upwards on, on the pedal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fitting may be a little bit uh, loosened uh, by repetitive work Uh, and there is the problem with the sweating for example inside the stump
3: uh,
2: and things like that and uh, swimming gets more difficult because you know only have one leg for propulsion Mm. and so there are some things that people maybe have enjoyed to do but it becomes much more difficult so but but of course there are other activities that could replace these kinds of activities Mm. and for example doing uh, exercise in a rowing machine yeah would be uh, beneficial I think yeah Uh, and then you can sit down and uh, do most of the work uh, with your upper body and uh, but also get some legwork yeah
1: and and how, how do you see the importance of, of daily physical activity measurements to to measure the progress of rehabilitation
2: I think uh, it's very important that this patient group get uh, feedback mm. uh, <coughs> personalized uh, feedback on uh, how they're doing maybe because many of them are well Many of the elderly uh, lower limb amputees uh, are amputated because they have some vascular disease, mm. uh, and diabetes, and things like that. And for prevention of further disease and also for improving the, the quality of life, uh, <clears throat> it's important that they are, have some level of physical activity. Mm. Uh, but uh, you know, every, everybody needs some kind of motivation, and some people are very self motivated, but other people need some input to to, for example, do their exercises and, and do them properly. Mm. So I think uh, a system that could give some more or less instant feedback to to a patient group that tells them uh, about if they reached their activity goal or not it would be very beneficial. And I think uh, with today's technology, we are closing in on that target because devices are getting smaller and better and more accurate. Mm-hmm. And uh, software is also getting better in analyzing this, this data.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and you do you think there's more importance for avoidance of sedentary behavior or promotion of light physical activity or moderate vigorous intensity activity in these groups?
2: Uh, I recently s- just observed that there's a new study out from the Norwegian School of sports Science. I'm um, one of the writers ra- ra- there. Uh, <coughs> Argumenting that uh, uh, moderate and, and uh, uh, fairly f- light physical yeah. activity was very important for for uh, for uh, for health, uh, and I think for this specific uh, patient group, it's important that uh, they increase uh, or decrease their amount of sitting. Mm because uh it's not good to sit uh, too much mm-hmm. uh, and uh, especially if you want to retrain your capacity for walking you, you need in fact to use uh, your leg uh, mm-hmm. and your prosthesis in a regular fashion mm-hmm. so so we need to decrease the amount of sitting for this group of patients.
1: Yeah, and basically replace it with walking.
2: Yes, I think so <laughs> as a start, and uh, but walking is, is a fundamental uh, activity for human beings and it makes them independent and if they then can move into also more vigorous types of activity it it would be good but the main target must be to get them uh, get more Mm. walking
1: yeah and i think you made a good point that elderly people they have some vascular disease diabetes because they get the amputation and they are already having high risks for for these diseases to progress yeah yeah. so it's even more important there activity for them and and I heard you said something earlier when we discussed that you had some special tests for amputees that you did the number eight and, and walking with the tray. Could you tell us a little bit more about those?
2: Yes this, uh, these are some tests we have used to investigate the brain responses of, uh, of this patient group Yeah, uh, we have them a dev- device which we call uh, a functional near infrared spectroscopy mm. uh, which looks like uh, a, a cap which you place on the head and on this cap uh, we have some uh, optical uh, sensors Yeah. and these optical sensors uh, a lot optodes if you call them they send out near infrared light. Mm-hmm. Uh, And uh, near infrared light has the capacity to to penetrate biological uh, tissue without doing any uh, damage or harm. Yeah. So this light travels into the brain, and uh, where it meets hemoglobin, and Mm. depending on if hemoglobin is oxygenated or not oxygenated, uh, the hemoglobin absorb this near infrared light differently so so based on this and some clever calculations we can look at uh, how much um, activity there are in specific brain regions yeah and uh, with that background we had some tests that challenged the the walking capacity of the lower limb amputees they had to walk in a, first in a figure of eight. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, this may sound trivial, but, uh, <clears throat> in fact, for an amputee, it's, it's difficult because you have to shift your balance from, from your healthy side to, to the amputated side. And you, uh, in one turn, you have the, uh, uh prothesis on the inside of, of the swing. And, uh, on another turn, you have it on the outside. Mm. So, so there's a lot of challenge on doing this, this figure of eight. And then the second level of this test that was that they still walked in a figure of eight pattern, but in addition, they carried a tray with two glasses of water. Yeah. And when you have a carry a tray, you will no longer see your moving legs. Yeah. Uh, so... That adds difficulty. So, so the hypothesis was that this would uh, cause increased uh, attentional demand mm-hmm. on, on doing this walking task. And the third and the most challenging uh, situation was that we placed uh, <coughs> a lot of foam mats on the floor, with uh, which had some uneven uh, structure to it. So. The people had to walk in a figure of eight on this foam mat, which is soft and forgiving. And uh, uh, kick pain balance is even more difficult than in the previous conditions. So then we monitored the brain activity during these three uh, challenging conditions yeah. uh, in a group of low-limb amputees and compared it to, to healthy persons. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that than the the attentional demand, the, the amount of uh, activity in the especially in the prefrontal cortex, yeah, is much higher in in the lower level than in the healthy controls.
1: Yeah, so basically they had the tray and there was two classes of water. Yeah. So that also increases that you need to balance the tray not only yourself, right?
2: Yes, correct.
1: So so that that increases the demands for the brain but you compare it with the healthy and it was yeah. even even higher than. yeah, yeah. So,
2: so with, with the prayer you have more like a dual task situation
1: yeah. yeah yeah and how do you see this I was actually uh, interviewing Timo Rantalainen in, earlier in the podcast and he was saying this dual task that it's it's quite an effective way of detecting Parkinson's disease in the early mm. early states or Alzheimer's I, I might make a mistake here but that you it's too much uh, for your brain to be calculating for example backwards and walking well so do you see any these kind of effects with your your patient groups have you noticed
2: yes so we we see that uh, they have increased uh, frontal brain activity uh, meaning that they need to concentrate more Mm. in in doing these tasks and uh, this may add to the feeling of fatigue when these people walk, because there is a lot of brain activity uh, uh, during walking, which mm. uh, and walking is an activity that people uh, regard as uh, easy. Uh, mm. But uh, for this group of person, it may be much harder because. Uh, uh, there's a lot more to watch out for. They're, yeah, there the yeah. balance, there the stance, there uh, are there obstacles. There are there uh, dual task situations. For example, is the phone ringing? Do I need to pick it up from my, from my pocket? Uh, mm. And you, you can see that for yourself if you walk on the street and your mobile phone phone calls and you pick it up and start to talk, you automatically be, begin to walk slower
3: yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> so, so there is a lot of uh, things for the brain to, to 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 process when we have this yeah dual task.
1: yeah so for them it needs more conscious thought to be walking and it might be mentally fatiguing in the, yes, in the end
2: yes, that also.
1: yeah and if, if we go to this neuroimaging you are using how how easy is it, it it is to use with the cap, and uh, I, I haven't tried <laughs> this this technology myself.
2: Well, the technology has made great advances during only the last five, six, seven years. <clears throat> so now uh, the system is uh, portable, of course. It's mm-hmm. wi- wireless. It's battery driven. So, in, in uh, fact, you have a cap on your head yeah. uh, with these optodes and you have a, a, a belt with a box and you connect these optos to, to this box which records all the signals yeah. uh, and then you can uh, walk around and do your thing yeah. uh, and uh, study the brain activity during any kind of physical activity Well, almost any kind.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so you said that there's a belt box, are there cables going from, from there? Yes,
2: there's a, uh, some cables going from the octodes to, to this box, uh, but nevertheless uh, there's a wireless transmission of the data to a receiving computer, for example. So you can get uh, online uh, or real-time uh, data uh, you could look at real-time data while they do their activity mm, very very
1: advanced technology and, yeah. and you said that you can you can see the activation in the prefrontal cortex and and so on so how is the resolution how small area of brain you can measure
2: well there are always trade-offs with different kinds of technologies so for Spatial resolution, uh, it's about two, three centimeters. Mm. So you cannot have the same spatial resolution as an MRI machine, for example. Yeah, of course. But the temporal resolution is much, much better than an MRI. Uh, And of course, you cannot carry an MRI. (laughs) Mm. Usually (laughs) not. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the basic principle of operation of the Uh, functional near-infrared spectroscopy and uh, MRI are the same. Yeah. It's based on something we call the bold principle. So so while an MRI has a much uh, higher uh, uh, spatial resolution, uh, the FNIRS is much uh, lower, of course, but for studying free-moving subjects, uh, there are really only two alternatives. If you want to look at brain activity, mm. it's the fNIRS and there is EEG. Yeah. But EEG has very high uh, temporal resolution, but very, very low spatial resolution. Yeah. Uh, so in a kind, of EEG and uh, fNIRS, they <coughs> complement each other. Yeah, uh, but uh, we haven't done any studies on that. So, just for a moment, we focus on that instead.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So, let's hear a few words from our sponsors and get
0: back to that right after. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity, and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibion at fibian.com slash research. So that's a, that's a practical. What kind of
1: applications you would see in your field and in other fields? Like where, where would you see this giving the greatest
2: think, advantage? Yeah, I think within the new, neural rehabilitation. For example, for any kind of neuro- neurodegenerative disease, this would be a very good instrument to, to use, both in uh, multiple sclerosis, in Parkinson, in Alzheimer's, uh, and in stroke patients, mm. where you then could monitor rehabilitation process processes uh, more or less continuously. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, for example, if uh, how well is there any neuroplasticity going on? Uh, how is the relearning process uh, uh, going on? Are activity in different areas of the brain are they shifting relating to, to the uh, severity of the disease or, uh, or, the, <coughs> or the progress of rehabilitation? These are, I think important questions we could start uh, answering using this technique
1: yeah and are there researchers looking this or?
2: Yeah, yeah you know the number of publication on FNERS is increasing exponentially yeah uh, <clears throat> So there is a lot of research on, on all these areas, but I think uh, s- Still there are very few people focusing on the group of lower limb expertise Mm. So, so there are only a uh, few groups worldwide
1: that use this instrument for for this group. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, if somebody is writing a uh, funding applications, there was just good oh, <laughs> you yeah. can see how to use ethnorists <laughs> with different yeah, patient and groups. So yeah, maybe yeah. you want to
3: yeah.
1: see from there. And and how is the how is the price of the device like? A uh, ballpark figure? How how much does it cost?
2: Well. Uh, you can go from anywhere from uh, one hundred thousand regions to many millions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Depending on uh, the number of channels uh, you you get. Yeah. If you get a three-channel device uh, that can then look at only one specific area in the brain. Yeah. And, for example, on one side of the head. You May spend one hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, but if you want high density recordings <coughs> or uh, from the whole head, yeah, uh, you talk many, many, many millions. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and we're talking about
1: crones so it's about dividing with ten yes, to get yes, euros, dollars, yeah. pounds, yeah. about. And and with the channels, how many channels you are having?
2: Well. Uh, we have uh, different options. We have uh, one system that gives uh, around 50 channels. Yeah. Or we could have uh, 20 channels de- depending on uh, the setup. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so. That covers most of our work, uh, mostly. Yeah. Uh, so, because we are interested in more or less in what's going on the motor cortex, uh, the prefrontal cortex, and the premotor area, mm. uh, so far so, so that uh, with the 40-50 um, channels that's uh, sufficient for, yeah. for now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And can you can you choose the locations that you are measuring?
2: Yes, you can do that. Uh, you kind of building a, a template of which brain area you want to investigate, mm. and you then place your optos in a specific pattern uh, designed for investigating this area. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you can pinpoint uh, a specific location if you want to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what do you think are the best one, best areas to look for the amputees? Uh, what what areas you are looking?
2: Well, we have mostly been looking at pre-frontal activity mm-hmm. because this is where decision making is uh, happening. Yeah. And uh, when you are challenging uh, this patient population with uh, different walking uh, challenges, we, our hypothesis has been that uh, the attention, uh, for uh, decision making is increasing, so, mm. so you have to investigate the prefrontal area, and also there are some technical difficulties with, for example, accessing the area uh, of the brain that controls uh, the lower leg, yeah, they, because they li- they they lie a little bit into. Uh, Sulcus in the brain, which you call, which is on, on the top of your head. Yeah. So it, it lays a little folded in in this sulcus. So so it may be more difficult to get breathing, good readings from that area. Yeah. But for example, <coughs> we haven't done studies on that. But this F nurse would be very suitable, for example, doing studies on uh, upper limb back activities because the. Brain area that, that represents the arm is uh, is located on uh, on the side of the head <laughs> and is very easily accessible with uh, with this uh, technology. Yeah. So so we've been thinking on moving a little bit towards uh, upper arms. That is.
1: Yeah. And I think because our arms are more dexterous, there's a bigger brain area yes, for for that. So it's yeah. easier. Yeah. And is it difficult to actually find the area for the leg, or is it how difficult is it measure the lower body? Activation.
2: Uh, well, <clears throat> there are these technical difficulties I mentioned to you, mm. uh, and, uh, but it all depends on, on the kind of technology uh, which you use, so, so, so if you have optodes that can penetrate a little bit deeper mm. than, than normal, you can access this area. Uh and the the thing is that uh, there is one opto that is sending out light and another opto that is receiving the light. Mm. and the distance between this the sender and receiver is important uh, for how deep you can scan into the brain tissue. Yeah, uh, yeah. you can <clears throat> if the distance between the sender and the receiver is three centimeters, you can go, about half that distance into the brain. Mm. So if you increase the distance between sensor and optode, you can go deeper, but uh, then the sc- scattering of light gets different, uh, and uh, you face another type of problems. Mm. So, yeah. so there are the, we are looking forward to some advancements in technology here to scan maybe a little bit deeper into the brain.
1: Yeah, so how how long have you been using this technology now?
2: Mm, About five years, I think.
1: Five years, Mm -hmm. all right. So I would assume there's quite a bit of learning curve that you have learned, so what are the practical tips, like very, very simple things that you have learned that you would like to share
2: with other researchers? This is uh, something that cannot be learned by reading the manual. (laughs) All right, uh, <laughs> you have to uh, dig in and do some uh, <laughs> dirty work, yeah, uh, and, and do experiments. And but, uh, with all new technology, there is a steep learning curve. But uh, it's it's not much more tricky than doing uh, other type of technical investigations, but one thing that maybe has been uh, a little bit of drawback during this five-year period is that there is no standardized way of how to analyze the data mm. uh, so when you look at different uh, publications you see that everyone has their own way of, of doing filtering pre-processing statistical analysis and so forth and, uh, and this add complexity to understand what is really going on Mm. in the brain. So there is a committee now looking at ways to standardize uh, this. And and I think that would be very meaningful for for this field. Uh, That could give us some guidelines of what filters to use in what situations Uh, and uh, what statistical methods are more appropriate for different... uh, uh, Designs, for example. All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's the the task force doing the recommendations now. Yes. Uh, It's uh,
2: operative.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Are you part of it?
2: No, I'm not. Uh, Uh, Yeah. I'm just eager to (laughs) hear
1: the results. (laughs) To hear the results. Yeah. Yeah. So the data analysis is, is a little bit complicated. Do you have any, any? that what you have learned, like do you have anything to share about location or actually doing the measurements where you have you know it might help a lot of if you have made some mistake mm-hmm. and and it, you didn't get the data <laughs> that somebody else don't do the same mistake?
2: Well, uh, I don't think we have done any major things that we have regretted uh, mm-hmm. but of course, Uh, I think my main advice is to prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare. I do a lot of pilot studies. Mm. So you get rid of all the small errors that could uh, affect your experiments and there's one maybe one topic uh, we haven't touched much into but uh, when you look at the what, what you are measuring in the brain is kind of the level of oxygenation mm. uh, and how much oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin there is in a specific uh, brain region. Mm. But this, of course, also will be affected by, for example, what is your heart rate? Yeah. Uh, which affects the cardiac output, uh, meaning how much blood is coming to the brain. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, what is the blood pressure, Uh, all these things are what we call confounding factors, Mm. uh, which in a way occlude the real activity in the brain. So there's a great attention now on how do we get rid of all these confounding factors. Yeah, and also we don't we want to measure the pure brain activity, but we know that some of the signal is contaminated with activity from the scalp, for example. Yeah, there are blood vessels there also. Yeah, so 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 these are learning points as you go. Uh, what may be. Confounding factors for this type of measurements. But but, but, but that is for any kind of measurement you do. What are the confounding factors that obscure your real uh, measurements?
3: Yeah.
2: But uh, for me, uh, this FNIRS has been uh, quite a new experience. Uh, So the learning curve has been really, really steep. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: But uh, once you cross a certain threshold of understanding, it's. it's the same as doing other types of yeah.
1: research. And and are you doing the measurements in the lab or are you doing it also outside of the lab with this technology?
2: We have done uh, most measurements in the lab, uh, mm. but we are now also preparing for uh, using the equipment in uh, in a rehabilitation center mm. for, for looking at uh, how uh, low limit is d- are coping during rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah. So it's a kind of lab setting and that also, of course, but uh, uh, yeah, mostly lab and so forth.
1: Mm, yeah. A lot of lot of new information for me <laughs> about this, this technology. Yeah, we've been discussing quite a while. Is there something else you would like to discuss still?
2: Well uh I've been in research, uh, research quite a long time and uh, I see now that uh, there are a lot of variables out there mm. and that makes the everyday life for a scientist much easier. And yeah. Devices that are wireless, that are small, that are accurate, and they are, they are good because it, it could provide information that until now has been not so easily accessible. Yeah. Because uh, as, as for the group I study most, uh, the lower limb entities, we know very little about, uh, for example, their physical activity when they are at home. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they spend um, maybe many more hours in their home than uh, people with two intact legs do. Yeah. So we really need to know and understand uh, <clears throat> the. Their uh, levels of physical activity. Yeah. and uh, New devices uh, allow us to do that.
1: Yeah. What What would be your dream wearable for the rehabilitation? The uh, what What should it measure? What are the most important
2: variables? Well. Uh I think there are different answers to this. One is uh, what's most valuable to the researcher, but uh, also what's more valuable for the patient. Uh, and I think for the patients, it's it's a kind of system that gives you a, a green or red flag according to have you reached your target of physical activity, for example, or mm-hmm. have you sit- been sitting too much uh have you been sedentary too much uh, yeah. you need to do this you need to be, do that uh, things that could give this feedback
3: yeah yeah
2: uh, th- that would be important for for the this uh, patient group
1: yeah yeah i see yeah and from from the research point of view what are the most important for the research in in the rehabilitation?
2: I think uh, we need data that are more ecological valid, meaning that they represent more what the people do in their real life and uh, not uh, reflect what they do in the lab. Mm. Uh, I think that it's really important. So we need to study more the type of activity people do when they are at home. Or at work or school.
1: Yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah, it's been it's been very very nice and interesting discussions of many many different different themes. Uh, thanks a lot for being being a guest in today's
0: episode. My This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibion.com research the physical activity researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers get your free copy from the link in the podcast description thank you for listening to the physical activity researcher podcast